the totally unofficial Big Finish Review podcast. Welcome to the Big Finish Review. So for the last couple of months, I have been faithfully reviewing the previous month's output from the creative geniuses at Big Finish. But today I would like to turn my attention to the massive archive of productions that this amazing company have been turning out since 1998. My intention is to to try and stay in the habit of reviewing last month's shows in the first week of the new month. I am currently furloughed, so I have some time on my hands. So in addition, I plan to do a new show roughly midway between the monthly shows that takes a look back at a specific period uh, from the history of Big Finish. I may not get time every month. Uh, It will all depend on free time and when I get back to work. I've also decided to put the audio of this out as a podcast. Both of the previous previous episodes are already out there if you search iTunes for the Big Big Finish Review podcast. For any listeners out there, this is the first show that was conceived also as a podcast. So I think I've managed to remove any annoying references to things on the screen that peppered the audio for the first two shows. But if you do notice something that I've missed, please email me with the details at the email address that is appearing at the bottom of your screen now. So I'm going to look back at the years 1998 and 1999 in terms of big Finnish history. It all started in about 1996 when Gary Russell approached the BBC with the idea of producing Doctor Who audio using actors who have appeared uh, in the classic television show. However, at the time, the BBC had been concentrating on taking all the bits of franchise Doctor Who, such as the books, and dragging them back and producing them in-house, which was why the highly successful and innovative Doctor Who The New Adventures and Missing Adventures book ranges produced by Virgin ended. So this wasn't the right time. Uh, So Gary instead decided to try and produce some audio plays featuring Bernie Summerfield, a a character created as a companion to the Doctor in the Virgin New Adventures ranges, um, and who stayed in the books realistically for the majority of the run. That's my dog you can hear in the background, by the way. Uh, Since losing the rights to do the Doctor Who range, um, Virgin decided to continue with a series of books starring Bernie Summerfield. And in 1997, um, the first book in the series, Oh No It Isn't, by Paul Cornell, was released. Over the next two and a half years, a further 21 books were produced in this range, ending in December 1999 with Twilight of the Gods. Gary Russell decided to kick the audio range off with an adaptation of the very first book. He enlisted Jack Rayner to adapt Oh No It Isn't as a way to launch the series. It was recorded on the 25th and 26th of June that year and released in September alongside the second release Beyond the Sun based on the third book in the Virgin book series which was recorded in August and also released in September. Sales were good, and a third production was greenlit, and according to the Big Finish website, both recorded and released in November that year. Walking to Babylon kicked off a trilogy of releases known as the Time Ring Trilogy, an element that was not in the original book as far as I recall. Walking to Babylon um, was based on the 10th book in the Virgin Book series. The second story in the trilogy and the fourth overall release was called Birthright, 
This time it was adapted from a book in the Doctor Who Virgin New Adventures range, but it didn't require much rewriting because it came for a pair of, from a pair of books that were um, running at the same time. Um, the Doctor and his companions basically had become separated, and one book, which isn't this one, focuses on the Doctor, and the other one, Birthright, focused on the companions. Um, although the sequences featuring Ace were changed uh, to be ones featuring um, Bernice's husband, Jason Kane. At roughly this point, Gary Russell was invited to another meeting at the BBC where they put forward the idea to him of doing some original Doctor Who audio dramas. They'd listened to Oh No It Isn't and Beyond the Sun and liked what they'd heard. Gary quickly accepted, and over the weekend of the 6th of March 1999, Peter Davison, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy entered the studio with other cast members and recorded the very first Doctor Who audio in the range. The Sirens of Time was released in July. The final part of the Bernie Summerfield Time Ring trilogy was released the following month in August, which was also the final Bernie Summerfield release for almost a year. The reasons I'll get into uh, on the next retro view, review show, or possibly the one after that. The story, Just War, was again based on a virgin Doctor Who New Adventure story, but this time substantially rewritten to remove the Doctor and make it tie into and complete this trilogy. Big Finish seemed fairly sure about the success of their first Doctor Who story and went into the studio the month before it was released to record the second story, Phantasmagoria, written by Mark Gatiss and starring Peter Davison as the fifth Doctor and Mark Strickson as Turlo, the first companion to feature in this new range. It was released in October, three months after the first release, and was followed in November by Whispers of Terror with Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant, which was also recorded before the sales of the first story could be properly assessed. And that's it. Two years, eight releases. Sometimes they release that many items in a single month these days. But were they any good? Did Big Finish hit the ground running? Next up are my reviews of each release from those opening two years. Dear Diary, it's me again, Benny. Have you missed me? I've been so busy recently. You know, saving the world a few times, that sort of thing. But now the world is safe again. Oh, yes, it is, Woolsey. Now, that takes me back. The Princess Bernice and Woolsey the Cat. Oh, walk slower, Walls. If I put my feet down too hard, these glass slippers will create a horrible ankle hemorrhaging situation. The King's balls get bigger every year. But it wasn't just one big party, was it? Now, look at the floor. It's a complicated pattern. But what it almost certainly comes down to is... Don't step on the white tiles. Huh. These puzzles are often deceptively simple. You see? You're getting an archaeology field trip after all. Watch the expert. As I said, it all comes down to don't step on the black tiles. You think that would have put me off field trips with my students for a while, wouldn't you? Not me. Always a glutton for punishment, I am. Although, remind me not to say that when Jason's around... He gets excited when I say the word punishment. Oh, the ship's a sitting duck. Can't you take evasive action? Evasive what? What do you think? This is a battleship. It takes 15 minutes to make a 45 degree turn. Oh my god, the screen's full of them. Do we have weapons? No. Force field, shields, anything defensive? Nope. What about ordinary equipment we can use as a weapon or a disguise or something? Oh, you mean like confusing their targeting systems by ejecting the cargo? Fill the space between us with millions of tons of rice grapes, that sort of thing. Oh my god, Benny, yes, exactly that. Can you do it? Nope. My life is just one close shave. 
We have to go back. Don't be stupid, bunnies. We've got what we came for. We have to get this away from the sunless permanently. Bunnies, Dr. Kitzinger, I know you can hear me. Bring me the visionary, or Jason dies. Oh, Jason. After all that, I really didn't think I'd see my darling ex-husband again. Shows how wrong a girl can be. <sighs> what sort of person calls on a girl before 3pm at a weekend, eh, Wolsey? Well, it's not fair. All right! Oh, goddess. Uh, hello, Benny. Um, don't I even get a hug? No, you bloody don't. What exactly are you doing here, Jason Kane? I can tell you're pleased to see me. Your nose always crinkles up. Actually, I was wondering if Wolsey had thrown up something. Oh, no. It's your aftershave. Sorry. And despite that... I followed him all the way back to Babylon, where I met some very special people. Who are the pair of you? Uh, we're travellers. You have come from some country beyond the ones I know. One of the cold lands, beyond the sea. Even further than that. I... I... Calm down. Look, please will you come with me? Because let me tell you, I'm puffed from chasing you around this damn city. If you'd rather take your chances, I'll leave you to it. I'll... I'll come with you. You see, he just needs to sleep it off. I want to talk to you, young lady. Return here tomorrow. Oh, sure. Um, in the morning, considering the way my party is going. <laughs> that late in the morning. And that was the first time I saved the Earth. But it certainly wasn't the last time. You know, most archaeologists would love the chance to go back to the past, really see how things were. But I bet none of them would believe just how smelly history can be. Or how dangerous. Benny? What's that smell? I can't smell anything. Like ammonia. Come on, down here. Oh, Benny, really? This Shh. is not... I think something's going to happen. Oh, boy. Keep still. Don't let it see us. Spring No, this is real. Just keep quiet. It, it will kill us. No, it, it hasn't even seen us. Keep no! Oh, keep away! Come on, Benny! Don't be shy! Come back! Oh, oh Benny! Oh, A world full of insects. Bring a chair in and tie her to it. Yes, Mr. Khan. Oh, don't go to any trouble on my account. It is no trouble, I assure you. Oh, oh get off! Thank you. You may leave us now. But Mr. Khan... Leave us. Yes, Mr. Khan. Okay, Khan. What's this all about? Insects, Professor Summerfield. So, I saved the world again. Got shot at, jumped on, tied up. Uh, another thing not to mention to Jason. And just when I thought things couldn't possibly get any worse, I found myself in the middle of the Second World War. Stay where you are. I'm armed. Oh, goddess. Who are you? Oh, wait. Your face looks familiar. No, I've just arrived on the island. My name is Bernie Summerfield. I am an agent of a hostile power. I am unarmed. I surrender. One of the most traumatic times of my life. Of both our lives. Not yet. You don't know Benny. 
She always saves the day. Oh, give me something to live up to, why don't you? Live up to? I'm sorry, Miss Summerfield, but that is irrelevant. You see, you are both dead. There were a few times when I thought I'd never get home again. But here I am, back in the 26th century at last. Back to a steady, uneventful life. Hmm. You know, now I come to think of it, I had some fun, didn't I? I wonder how long this peaceful bit is going to last. Oh, I could do with a bit of excitement again. Benny! Come back to bed. Huh. Excitement beckons. Oh, extract ends. Firstly, just to let you know that Big Finish have only produced a trailer for the first series as a whole. I did consider breaking it up into chunks, but actually I thought it was better to play the whole thing at the start now to give you a bit of a flavour. Um, I will be talking about each of the five plays featured in there at some point during this show. Secondly, for the uninitiated, here is a little bit about Bernice Summerfield herself. Although she calls herself Dr. Summerfield, she never actually received the qualification. Um, at the start of these stories, she's working as a professor of archaeology at St. Oscar's University on the planet Della. Betty herself is, at the outset, a morally quite ambiguous character. For example, she's pretty much decided to have sex with one of her students when they get back to the spaceship in the first story because she thinks he's cute and he's probably hoping for extra credit on an essay. Oh No It Isn't starts on the last day of a field trip to the planet Perfecton, whose entire population was wiped out five millennia ago, apparently by a virus. There are some strange anomalies about the planet. It has an atmosphere that science says should not be there. So it is believed that some remaining Perfecton technology must be preventing the atmosphere from escaping. In fact, the planet has been embargoed until fairly recently when it was discovered that the sun could go super at any, supernova at any time. And so special permission was given for some archaeological digs to explore the planet. Once all of the students and gear are back on board, the spaceship, the Winton, which turns out is an Inman-class cruiser, I kid you not, is attacked by a race called the Grell. Now, the Grell are data pirates. All they're interested in is stealing knowledge. However, at the precise moment the Grell board the ship, it is also struck by a missile that is launched from the surface of Perfecton. Suddenly, all of our characters are catapulted into a very different and rather silly world. Benny wakes up and discovers she's actually Dick Whittington, and her best friend is none other, none other than her own cat, Woolsey. However, in this universe, wherever they are, Woolsey is a sentient, human-sized cat, played by Nicholas Courtney, who Doctor Who fans will know and love as Brigadier Alastair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart. Benny's students are represented as dwarves, lazy, moody, laddish, gushy, bitchy, liberal and cute cute being Duran, the student that she decided to shag on the way home. Even the crew of the Winton are represented in this weird place. Here, Lieutenant Prince, the first officer, is Prince Charming, and his father, the King, sorry, and his father, the King, was actually the Winton's commander, Captain Balsam. Benny is acutely aware that she is the only person who knows exactly who she really is, until they're attacked by the Grell in the strange place, when she soon finds out that they also know they're not in their real world. 
I can't work out what to think of this play. At nearly two hours long, it definitely needed some good old-fashioned editing as there is a lot of really unnecessary material. The casting is superb though, especially Benny herself, who is played by actress Lisa Bauman. Now, Lisa actually appeared as the cat lady Cara in the final televised Doctor Who story survival, although she did spend most of her time in that made up as a cat. She is inspired casting in this play, and the performance in making the character entertaining and engaging is absolutely the main reason they're still producing plays in this range, starring her as that character 23 years on. There are some other big finished regulars amongst the cast, including the play's director Nick Briggs, who plays the first officer and his alter ego Prince Charming, as well as Benny's fairy godfather who he plays by doing an impression of Julian Clary. In fact, he's not the only gay icon deliberately referenced and impersonated. The amazing Mark Gatiss is also amongst the cast playing the Grand Vizier, who is channeling Kenneth Williams. I don't know if the intention was for it to come across as funny, or indeed whether at the time it did, but 23 years on, and it just smacks of being a bit camp and kitsch. It takes Benny a little while to work out why she is in a pantomime world, but when she does, it turns out she's basically in the plot of the Star Trek Next Generation episode, The Inner Light, with the serial numbers filed off. Both as a book to start the written range and as a play to start off the audio range, it really is a strange choice. It doesn't have the traditional narrative. It sort of ambles from one set piece to another, and things are only really explained towards the end. The sound design is a lot more primitive than than you are used to from Big Finish these days, but having read some comments online from one of the production team, I was specifically looking out for this. The modern approach seems to be basically imagine every sound that would actually really be be there, footsteps, everything, and put them in. Today's Big, Big Finish's sound design is outstanding. And you can see here that they were just starting out because the level of detail that we're used to is just not there. You only really hear footsteps if it's relevant, like if somebody says, oh, I'm going up the stairs, or the bit where Wolsey is tap dancing. It's not that it's bad, it's just not like anything as complex as an audio landscape that we're used to now. I also think the title of this joke is meant to be, sorry, the title of this book is meant to be a joke. The reader might ask when they bought the original book, is this a Doctor Who book? This is because it followed on directly from um, Big Finish's, uh, from, from the final ever Virgin Doctor Who book, at the end of which the Eighth Doctor deposits Benny on the planet Della. Is it a Doctor Who book? Oh no, it isn't. It's not all bad. Technically, it's reasonably well put together. And like I say, the acting is great. Personally, I would have liked a more serious story to uh, have, have been launched with. The drama is still available, and like the rest of the first six series of the Bernie Summerfield range, it has been recently made available as a download. In fact, Oh No It Isn't was given away last year as part of Big Finish's Lock Downloads programme to both give people something to do when they couldn't go out and entice newbies into the range. Some of the first series is actually out of print on CD, so downloads are definitely, and in some cases, the only way to go. At £4.99 per play or £20 for the first six, it's a lot of entertainment for not all that much cash. The second play in the series is a story called Beyond the Sun. It is based on a book written by Matt Jones, who also adapted it for audio, and it was directed by Gary Russell. Now, Beyond the Sun is a far more complex story and a far more competently put together one. Once again, we start off during an archaeological expedition. This time, though, Bernice has only two students with her. They missed a module for some reason, so she's taken to a dig um, so that they can catch up with their peers. 
Very early on, Benny's ex-husband Jason turns up. He has an artifact, which he asks her to look after. And then after they spend the night together, because they're still fairly close as much as they both hate to admit it, he's kidnapped. The police initially assume that there is something stolen hidden in the statue and that Benny is his collaborator. But when that turns out not to be the case, she is released without charge. The artifact comes from the planet Ursu, so Benny cuts the expedition short to run her students home. On the way, she stopped at Ursu, intending to try and uh, initiate radio communications to find out more details about the artifact. It is a closed world, so she cannot visit, at least not officially, and not with two students in tow, and her intention is to come back. However, when the vessel is shot out of the sky by a non-native craft, Benny, Emil and Tomiko are forced to use escape pods and crash land on the planet. Once they're there, they're taken in by some of the local population and they discover that the planet has been invaded by aliens known only as the Sunless. Ursu was originally a colony world and when they were a younger colony and quite technologically powerful, they ransacked the homeworld of the Sunless and stole devices that they then used to continue their race. So rather than indulging in sexual reproduction, all new people on Ursu are created in biological looms, in batches of eight, which represent the eight races that originally colonised the planet. The Sunless now want their looms back. Problem is, it will leave the Ursulans sterile and without a way of, re of reproducing. There's a lot I like about this play. And there is a lot also that I struggle with. I do recall really enjoying the original book, so the story is absolutely fine. And I think the audio script is pretty good as well. This being, again, a very early play in the pantheon of, being, pantheon of Big Finish, there were a few things they got wrong. The first thing is something that is usually one of their strengths, which is using the cast to play multiple characters. Uh, this is uh, the story first featuring um, Annika Wills in Big Finish, who is best known to Doctor Who fans as companion Polly from the William Hartland Patrick Troughton era in the 1960s. In this, she plays one of the midwives that operates the looms, but there's also an earlier part in which she plays another character. She has a really nice but distinctive voice. And putting an electronic effect on it does in no way disguise the fact that it's her. Um, it appears she was not directed to put on an accent or change her voice in any way. And this makes the production feel rather cheap when she turns on when she turns up not much later on in the more substantial role of Dr. Kitzinger. There is also a sequence in the second half where Benny and the students steal an armoured car. There is an extremely lacklustre sounding chase before they're caught. I mean, they're saying their lines and there are sound effects going on in the background, but none of it feels like it is actually happening at the same time. It's a shame because actually in terms of sound design, Beyond the Sun is pretty good with the exception of this scene. There are a couple of edits as well that are really badly done. So I'm used to a gradual fade and a short gap to indicate a new scene. Um, I actually listened to this one on headphones whilst I, uh, via my mobile phone whilst I was going for a walk and the audio fade outs are so sudden they sound exactly the same as when my phone cuts audio for an incoming call so there are a number of times um, when I picked up my phone thinking I was about to have to have a conversation with someone before realizing it was just another really sharp edit in the play this is also the first story in the audios to feature Jason Kane, Benny's ex-husband, who is in fact a major character in the remaining story of the, uh, the in the remaining stories of the current series, and indeed for the next ten years of the range. Normally, when you introduce a character, they will at least 
be partly the focus of the stories that they're introduced in. Beyond the Sun wasn't Jason's first story in the book range, and so they didn't need to do that. And the result is the introduction of a major character that feels somewhat incomplete. He appears in an opening scene or two and then a little bit towards the end of the story. It doesn't really do him justice as a character, but this is addressed uh, quite quickly in, in later episodes. Another thing that isn't great is that the policeman investigating Jason's disappearance is obviously the same actor with a bad voice effect again. By and large, the performances are really good. Lisa Bauman has already found her character's voice and Stephen Fuel, despite his lack of material, is great as Jason. The Ursulans are interesting and special mention must go to Barnaby Edwards, who plays Leon. He is a character with a strong sex drive and Edward pl Edwards plays him brilliantly without making him seem seedy which could have very easily been the case. Um, and the awkwardness of one of Benny's students, Emil, who is obviously gay but has not admitted it even to himself yet, around Leon is beautifully written. It's a shame that the actor who played Emil isn't able to bring the words alive from the page. It works beautifully in the book, and it almost works here thanks to Barnaby Edwards. There are also bursts of the theme tune at points throughout the story, almost as though they thought of editing it into four distinct episodes Doctor Who style uh, and then changed their minds at the last moment. What does work is the scale of the story. The Ursuline culture feels real and there are some great moments. For example, when Tamiko recognises the photograph of the mysterious ninth person to come out of one loom batch of eight as the person Jason was photographed with earlier in the story, his so-called girlfriend Miranda, who is played with gusto by Sophie Aldred, again giving her first performance for Big Finish. Uh, when this was released, we were still about 18 months away from her first appearance in this range, recreating her role as Ace. Most of the other cast are great, with a sad exception of the person who played Emil. He never sounded quite like he was doing much more than reading his lines, sadly making the sexual awakening of his character one of the least enjoyable plot points, when in the book, it was one of the best. Both of these two original releases are very different from the kind of stuff we're used to from Big Finish now. But they are worth listening to, not only because they illustrate how far the company has come, but also because it shows they hit the ground running from the most part from day one. I did listen to both of these plays on the same day. Um, and you can hear how much better Beyond the Sun sounded than Oh No It Isn't. They were learning and learning rapidly. The next release, indeed the final of the three releases in 1998, was the Bernice Summerfield play Walking to Babylon, which was written by Kate Orman and again adapted by Jack Rayner. It starts when Benny gets a surprise visit from her ex-husband Jason. They've not seen each other since the events in Beyond the Sun, and Benny is not all that pleased to see him, especially when it transpires that he was just there to steal her wedding ring. The wedding rings are time rings, based on the similar device from the Doctor Who story Genesis of the Daleks, and uh, given to them by the Doctor as a wedding gift when they married in one of the Virgin New Adventures books. These rings, though, unlike the ones in that story, well, in Genesis, only allow you to travel through time when they are placed together. Jason has met a member of one of the most powerful races in the universe, um, simply known as the People, capital P. Now, if I'm right, uh, this is a race that was introduced in the Doctor Who New Adventures book story called The Also People um, by Biter Ben Aranovich. Uh, known then as a writer for Doctor Who and now as a successful author of the superb Rivers of London book series. 
Jason and two of the people have travelled back in time to ancient Babylon. It is against their rules and the people are very worried that their enemies, who are never referred to by name, will start a new war if they find out that the people have broken the treaty. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure that the other race is the Time Lords, but they don't get mentioned by name here. The people decide the only way to preserve the treaty and hide what has happened is to send a nuclear bomb back along the time corridor and destroy any evidence of their crime. Benny points out that this will also alter history to a massive extent. Babylon was not destroyed at the time Jason and the two people have arrived in, and she begs to be allowed to walk down the time tunnel, find Jason and the people, and bring them back. She is given 48 hours. After that, the people will go with plan A and nuke ancient Babylon. Once again, this release is a step up from the previous one. The sound design, whilst not being as complex as it becomes, is still pretty good, although there are no footsteps. Um, there's a lot going on in the background, though. You get crowds, animal noises and music, and it all works rather well. I'm not knowledgeable enough to know if the music was period accurate, but it certainly sounds as though it could be. Benny meets plenty of people there, including a man who somehow managed to walk down the same time tunnel, but he originated from the ruins of ancient Babylon in 1901. He's a linguist called John Lafayette, played by Barnaby Edwards, who was in Beyond the Sun as a different character, but he's got such a versatile voice, it doesn't matter. Joining Lisa Bowman as Bernie Summerfield and Stephen Fuel as Jason Kane is the amazing Elizabeth Sladen as High Priestess Ninen. Stephen Wickham plays an, electro an electronic drone belonging to the people and later on in the series he, he plays Benny's butler drone. Um, and I, if I'm honest, I couldn't remember if the two were linked and I did expect one of the drones in this story to leave with her at the end of the story. But in hindsight, I think it's just a coincidence. It's a wonderful tale with a lot going on. Obviously, there is the deadline looming over everything Benny does, but there is also some lovely character moments with, with Benny and John Lafayette. Stephen Fuller's Jason also gets to do a lot here, making up for what was not much more than an extended cameo in Beyond the Sun. There is some nice talk about duty, and the slavery theme is really touching as well. I really enjoy this story. At the end, things are not completely resolved, though. Jason and Benny enter the time tunnel to return home just as the people send their nuke. What happens? Find out! Well, now, actually. The story continued in the next release, Birthright, which was the second story in the Time Ring trilogy and, Benny and Big Finish's first release, and indeed Benice's first release, in 1999. If I remember rightly, the original story featured Ace and Bernice. So this version uh, has um, Ace substituted with Jason and any tiny appearance that the Doctor made in the original book excised altogether. So it turns out that but thanks to a number of coincidences from what I can make out, ancient Babylon survived by the skin of its teeth. I'm not quite sure how, but the bomb people sent there must have been deflected by Benny and Jason entering the time corridor. Unfortunately, when they arrive at the start of this story, they are not both in the same time zone. In fact, initially, it seems they haven't even arrived in the spatial, same spatial location either, but we do eventually find out that they have. Beneath arrives in London in 1908, just as there have been a string of rather gruesome murders. Jason arrives on a planet that is inhabited by an insect race called the Charil, who are dying, but they've discovered a way to propagate their species by sending members of their own race into a time tunnel they've discovered, which leads back to Earth in 1908. It seems that the time tunnel created by Jason and Benny's time rings coincidentally intersected with the Charil time tunnel to Earth's past, and Jason and Benny have actually accidentally been sent to either end of it. At just over two hours long, this is the longest play in the first Bernice series, and thus 
pretty much the longest play in the range. The characters in 1908 are great fun. Lisa Bauman is joined by Colin Baker as a Russian police detective, Mikhail Popov, who has come to London after noticing a similarity between the murders in London and some in his native Russia, which have now stopped. The clear inference being that the murderer has moved to London. Of course, both plots tie up. It turns out that the Charles time tunnel was an unforeseen result of an asteroid impacting with Tunguska in Russia earlier in the year. The energy release was so massive that it damaged the space-time continuum, and the Charles have been using the resulting time tunnel to send their own people back to lay eggs in humans in order to continue their species, having dissected a few first to make sure that they are compatible. I was hoping to comment on the soundscape again and how it improved again with this release, but the truth is I got so caught up in the story I forgot to keep tabs on it. There are some lovely moments. John Lafayette from the previous story accidentally took home a piece of future technology and knowing that Benny is able to travel in time, he's placed it in a secure setting in a bank in Guernsey um, for her to find with a key word to gain access that only she will know. He's also peppered London with letters giving her this information. And one really nice touch is that when he, when Benny gets one of these letters and reads it, Barnaby Edwards narrates it. He didn't have to. Um, it would have saved money just to use Lisa Bauman to read it out to herself. But I'm really glad they didn't. It was a really nice touch. It also means he's been in all four plays so far. Situation is eventually resolved, but a local idiot tries to enter the time tunnel at the end of the story, just as Bernice and Jason leave. They have this time agreed, though, at least to meet somewhere should they become separated. Birthright is a solid entry into the first series of the Bernice Summerfield range. The characters feel real, and Colin Baker is so different from his somewhat arrogant version of the Doctor, you quickly forget it's him. And the rest of the cast do sterling work. The opening scene, where a punter is about to solicit the service of a prostitute just before she's ripped to death, is entertaining and suggestive in a way that Doctor Who itself, which is aimed more at a family audience, could not make, could not be. Benjamin Roddy is great as Charlie, um, as is John Wadmore, uh, Wadmore as the Charles 1908 stooge Jared Khan. And most importantly, it's a story in its own right, uh, whereas sometimes the middle story in a trilogy can sometimes feel like just that. The logical thing now is to tell you about the final story in the trilogy, but my intention is to present these reviews in release order. So, we have now arrived at July 1999, and the release of Big Finish's very first Doctor Who story, The Sirens of Time. Oh! <coughs> You're right. I think I've broken something. What about you? Yes, I'm fine, thanks. Oh, yeah, I rather think I broke your fall. Oh, sorry. I'll survive. Oh, can you two help me up? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Careful. Yeah. Oh, oh, we're going to make a fine team with you two having to help me. Whoa. Torpedo. I'm not a delegate, I'm known as the Doctor, I'm a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey, and my TARDIS was recently blown apart in a spatio-temporal explosion which I imagine is now known to you as the Kurgon Wonder. Does that cover everything? Oh, that was a little too close for comfort. Oh my God, listen Doctor, there's another one coming in. Get down! Oh. The Time Lords really do want me dead. Destroy him! Ow! 
As an opening gambit in a new range of full-cast audio dramas, The Sirens of Time by Nicholas Briggs is an odd cookie. There are some things in it that are great, and there are some things that aren't so great. Um, It certainly isn't representative of the range as a whole, either what it became or even how it continued almost immediately beyond this point. In a way, it's a statement of intent. It made sense to do a multi-doctor story for the first release. In 1999, the first three actors to have played the role on television had sadly passed away, the most recent being John Pertwee in 1996. Of the remaining five, Tom Baker wasn't interested, and I'm sure that at that point nobody really knew what the right situation was with Paul McGann because the TV movie had only aired three years ago. So the three Doctors that this play is centred around are the 5th, 6th and 7th, as you can see from the picture. Oh, and I did say I wouldn't refer to anything on the screen. Oops, sorry. Anyway, Peter Davison, Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. However, it conveniently manages to find them all at a time when they are companionless. Apart from the 5th Doctor, um, because Tegan and Turlo are there, but they just stay inside the TARDIS. Which makes each segment seem somewhat incomplete, although I'm sure it's for good reasons. It's got a large enough cast without adding another three or more actors. Close to the time of release, Doctor Who magazine um, did a CD featuring a documentary about the making of this story. In that, the production team described it as four separate plays, which... I don't actually agree with. It starts off looking like that. The first episode only features McCoy, who was then the current Doctor, if you exclude Paul McGann, who they weren't able to use, and it ends on a cliffhanger, at which point the next episode only features Davison and also ends on a cliffhanger. The only link between the two, apart from occasional scenes set on Gallifrey featuring the Time Lords getting more and more upset about an incursion by an as yet unnamed race, is that the Doctor meets a youngish girl in each scenario, always played by Sarah Moat and always with a similar but not identical name. Second episode continues in a similar vein and ends in a similar way, with the Doctor being in a no-win situation, and Old Sixie returns in part three, and it's a similar similar setup. None of the stories are all that riveting. Seven lands on a planet where an ancient warrior, Sancroft, is being kept prisoner by one guard. He's so decrepit that the guard is pretty much his carer as well. A vile creature named Ruthley, played with gusto by Maggie Stables, who turns up in a few releases time as a companion to the Sixth Doctor. Indeed, Big Finish's first original companion, Evelyn Smythe. The Doctor arrives at the time Sancroft is due to be assassinated. The Fifth Doctor later arrives on a German U-boat in the First World War, and the Sixth Doctor on a spaceship in the far future. So the first three episodes are merely okay. Writer Nick Briggs had a difficult task here, because as soon as you spot the similarity between what is happening to each Doctor, which happens when you listen to episode two, the whole thing starts seeming like it's a bit of a holding pattern, and it's not until episode four when things start, start to come together. Episode 4 is great, it just takes far too long to get there. The logic behind what is going on does eventually make sense. It turns out that the Doctors have all been coerced by the girl, Eleanor, Helen or... Oh, sorry, Elenia, Helen or Ellie, to change time and create a paradox. Sancroft should have died, but thanks to the Doctor, he did not. The German U-boat should have destroyed the Lusitania in World War I, but did not. A survivor from that eventually murders Alexander Fleming before he, ha- before he can discover penicillin. And the long-term effects of that mean that, that a pandemic in 1958 wipes out the population and humans never deliver, uh, develop space travel, and so on. Each Doctor changes history and the siren feeds from that energy um, that it creates. 
And the trap is this. Apparently, if the Doctor changes time more than once, presumably per incarnation, otherwise all this makes even less sense, then he'll be bound to the Siren forever, creating paradoxes at their leisure for them to feed from. The episodes feel sparsely populated. It actually has quite a large cast, but they are spread between the episodes, so each story feels quite contained and claustrophobic, which in the case of the one set on the U-boat works absolutely fine. But in episode 3, the Doctor lands on a spaceship populated by 500 crew and 5,000 delegates, at least until the majority are wiped out. It never feels like a big and busy spaceship, and you never get a scene with more than three people. Most of the time, it's only two. As I said, the final episode is good fun. The interplay between the Doctors is, as you'd expect, Six and Sever bicker in a way reminiscent of Troughton and Pertwee, and it's a lot of fun. The plot comes together and does make sense. The final episode is almost 40 minutes long, but it has taken almost an hour and a half of rather average storytelling to get to this point. Don't get me wrong, it's not all bad. I suspect the mere fact that it was new Doctor Who was enough to make me love it when it first came out, but it really doesn't stand the test of time, probably because I now how good these releases get and how quickly. The following month saw the release of the fifth play in the Bernice Summerfield range, also the third and final part of the Time Ring trilogy titled Just War. As I said at the top of the show, this was adapted by Jack Rayner from a Doctor Who book created by Lance Parkin, but with the Doctor removed from the storyline. The ongoing thread of this futuristic device that is stuck in the past in Guernsey is finally resolved here as well. In fact, it is crucial to this story. The story briefly is this. Somewhat unsurprisingly, Benny and Jason are separated again by the time rings, both materialising in different times, although possibly the same place I can't actually remember. Jason appears a few years before Benny in the lead up to the Second World War, and Benny arrives on Guernsey in 1940 after it has been occupied by the Nazis. Jason has used this time to get involved in the war effort in an attempt to change history. He explains this later and his reasoning makes sense. The way the war played out made the start of his life very difficult and he believes that the world would be a better place if the war never actually happened or was at least curtailed. So he tries to use his knowledge of the future to change the outcome and ends up as a captain in the technical wing of the army. At the end of the previous story, he and Benny agreed to meet on Guernsey if they got separated, and whilst he's unable to go there now thanks to the occupation, there is a spy network passing information back to the mainland, and thanks to that, he knows that someone matching Benny's description is now on the island. Benny has not had the opportunity to recover this futuristic device that has lurked in the background of all these stories in the trilogy to give its correct name the Chronokinetoscope. She also knows how history should play out in this era, and there are some signs that things are not going quite the way they should. The characters on Girls at Guernsey all have an air of realness about them. The woman that has taken Bernice in, Ma Dora, is pretending that she is her daughter who in reality left the island to live on the mainland some time, some time ago. There is a good mixture of portrayals of the Nazi characters as well. We have a psychotic one, of course. Uh, but there are also young men who are just following orders, you know, securing their indoctrinated belief that Germany are doing the right thing. One of these is Private Franz Hutter, who has a bit of a thing for Bernice, or Miss Dora, as she's pretending to be. And when Bernice needs to get close to an airbase to get some information, she finally allows him to take her out for a walk. It ends in tragedy, though. She's forced to kill him to save her own skin, but it is a gut-wrenching moment. Beautifully played. 
then it gets worse. Bernice is captured. When she's playing Mardera's daughter, she always wears a wig and lots of ma- makeup, so nobody in the German camp actually recognises her, and they think she's a spy. She's tortured by a vicious Nazi officer called Wolf in some scenes that are quite hard to listen to. She's sleep-deprived until she's hallucinating, burned with cigarettes and humiliated. This is strong stuff, and probably the most unpleasant thing that has happened to a big Finnish character in any of their plays. This story is very strong. Like like with Birthright, I intended to sit there concentrating on and then being able to comment on the differences in the production values and styles to what they do now. And instead, once again, I got completely caught up in the story. The missing Kroner kinetoscope turns out to be pivotal. A German scientist managed to steal it just before the war and used the technology to develop a stealth aircraft, one that cannot be detected by the new radar technology. This accounts for the differences in in time that Bernice has spotted. You can take it as read that when Jason finally turns up, they do destroy the prototype, which has been five years in the making and set history on its correct course. I adore this play. It takes a lot of risks and is thoroughly enjoyable. However, the one downside of listening to the plays in the order that they were produced is that you start to notice how many actors are being constantly used, I would even argue overused to some degree. Mark Gatiss is on his third appearance and he's played a German officer twice. Maggie Stables is here as Mar Dara. She was also in Sirens of Time the previous month. Anthony Keach, Franz in this, was also in the Sirens of Time and Walking to Babylon. And Michael Wade, who plays Oscar Steiner in this, was in Sirens of Time too. Although they're not in this one, both Nick Briggs and Barnaby Edwards have done their fair share of appearances. Of course, This is because they're new and finding their feet. As they become more prolific over the years, this level of actor reuse just wouldn't be possible. Although it has happened again more recently to a degree, thanks to lockdown and actors having to use home studios. So of course, any actor without a home studio cannot appear for the time being. This isn't a criticism, by the way, either then or now. But it was a tiny bit disconcerting listening to two consecutive plays and recognising half the cast. Just War is unusual in one sense in terms of casting, though it did not employ it did not employ an ex Doctor Who regular cast member in a key role. I'm not saying this by way of judgment. It was nice to hear from classic era actors, but this play just proved that they were not key to the success of this range. Just War is epic and cruel and brilliant, and a fitting end to the Time Ring trilogy. And the final scenes leave you feeling there will be long-lasting psychological ramifications for the characters, especially Benny. All of these Bernie Summerfield plays are two-disc story stories, and so they feel quite substantial, with running times going from 90 minutes to 2 hours and 7 minutes. Sadly, this was the last Bernie Summerfield play to be released for a year, I'll go into the details of what happened and why um, in a future retro show. Um, But I will say Just War and indeed this whole first series with a possible exception of the very first one are very good. Indeed, had they not been, I suspect that new material featuring the character would still would would not still be being made to this day. So here we go. It's uh, now October 1999. We're done with Bernice Summerfield in this show, but we still have two more Doctor Who plays that were released in 1999 to discuss. Here is the trailer for the next one. William, as in William and Mary, right? 
So they did teach you something at Brendan, then? I liked history. Well, now you can watch it happen. It's the 8th of March, 1702. My name is Nicholas Valentine. I prithee pardon, gentlemen, but I must make free with your purses. Till next we meet. Good night, gentlemen. It has been a pleasure. Ha! A pleasure for you to be robbed by Major Billy Lovemore! If we had time, you and I could sit by the fire and natter on about mapping exterior continuums onto interior dimensions and so on and so forth. But we don't have time. Regrettably, no. However, for the sake of established history, that's probably no bad thing. There have been developments. Our client reports there is something odd going on in the vicinity. Disappearances. Then last night, something more. In the name of Christ, help me! Who is it? Why is you? And also, they're coming! They're coming for me! We shall play another game, you and I. I'm afraid the rules are of my own making. <laughs> Phantasmagoria gets right a lot of things that the somewhat overambitious Sirens of Time got wrong. As I said, it made sense from a marketing point of view to start off with a multi-doctor story, but thanks to that, the story never felt like it belonged in a specific era of the classic show. And that's what the monthly range did best from the start. It plonked you down in a particular era of the show, the show's history and, and let you live through it again, but with new material. It's interesting, actually, that quite a lot of the Peter Davison ones are set in incredibly specific points in the show history. Turlow, for example, who is the companion in this, never actually travelled as the sole companion to the Doctor for a whole story. Tegan left in remembrance of the Daleks, and Turlow himself left in the very next televised story, Planet of Fire. So the only place Phantasmagoria can be set is between those stories. And even in Planet of Fire, Turlow was not alone because it was the story in which Perry joined. Similarly, off tangent a bit, but when Nyssa features in a story as the lone companion, which she does later in this range, it can only set between Time Flight, when Tegan left for the first time, and the next story of Arc, Arc of Infinity, where she rejoined. The main issue with the Peter Davison plays for a long time was that Janet Fielding, who was his companion Tegan, for the majority of his television run, just didn't want to take part. She gave in eventually. They nearly all do. Look at Tom Baker, Matthew Waterhouse and even Christopher Eccleston. But it does mean that the early Davison runs were always with a companion that you knew, but one that had never really been the sole companion at any point on television. Phantasmagoria is written by the amazing Mark Gatiss. And before you ask, yes, he is in it again as well. This means that he's been in four out of the first seven Big Finish productions. <laughs> this story, set in the early 1700s, um, actually has a pretty, pretty phenomenal cast. The trio of friends that hang around in the Diabolo Club, Quincy Flowers, Jasper Jeek and Edmund Carteret, are played by David Walliams, Mark Gatiss and Jonathan Rigby. And two of those are now very big names. For Mark Gatiss, this was a massively important year. He is most arguably, sorry, he is famously, he is most arguably most famous for the League of Gentlemen. Get it out eventually, Andrew. Um, which has been going for a few years at this point as a stage play than a Radio 4 comedy show. The year Phantasmagoria was made was the same year that League of Gentlemen first became a television hit. So he is a lot less involved with Big Finish from this point on. But I am pleased to say that he does still occasionally work for them, even to this day, occasionally cropping up as a parallel universe version of the master amongst other roles. Uh, and for example, he's in the forthcoming 10th Doctor audio series, Dalek Universe, coming out later this year. 
David Walliams too, was close to superstardom. This was the year that Rock Profiles first appeared on BBC Three, which led to Little Britain four years later. To date, though, this has been his only big finish appearance. The main baddie is Sir Nicholas Valentide, played by David Ryle, who has so many credits to his name, both genre and not. I'm sure if you look him up, you will find you recognise him. He has a wonderful voice to play a bad guy. The regulars are on fine form in this play. Peter Davidson and Mark Strickson are instantly recognisable as the characters uh, we are used to watching them play on the television. And the story itself really feels like Doctor Who. I'm sorry, but Sirens of Time didn't. It's partially thanks to its historical settings uh, and its creepily goings on. I think this would have made a great set of television episodes. But then I have a feeling I'm going to say that a lot about um, future Big Finish stories. Um, the plot revolves around a set of mysterious vanishments. Flowers and Jeek lose their friend Carter quite early on. And investigations suggest that, in fact, upwards of 20 people have gone missing over the last few months. We know it's something to do with Valentine, and there are some other goings-on that must somehow be connected with everything, uh, but at least initially we don't know how. There are a pair of alien-sounding voices in episode one that we do not hear from again until episode three, and then there's the mystery of the highwayman Major Billy Lovemore. The resolution of the strands is satisfying and not what you'd expect, and the reveal at the end of episode three is an enjoyable and genuine surprise. I really liked this play the first time I heard it. You can probably tell I still do. Uh, in fact, it was my letter that was printed in Doctor Who magazine. I liked it so much I wrote in to say how much I enjoy the play. And it was the lead letter on the letters page that month. It has stood the test of time. It's just well put together. One thing I had forgotten until I listened to it in preparation for this review um, is that all the early releases for Big Finish... Uh, used the classic version of the Doctor Who theme tune. It wasn't until a few years later that they started using the contemporary themes for the relevant Doctor. Now, I didn't notice it with Sirens of Time because it was a multi-Doctor story, so the theme didn't jump out as wrong. Well, wrong is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. One final little thought. The Unquiet Dead, the third episode from when Doctor Who returned to the television in 2005, was also written by Mark Gatiss. In fact, at one point, Charles Dickens says, What phantasmagoria is this? I doubt that was a coincidence. The final big finished release of the period I'm covering today was the Doctor Who play The Whispers of Terror, starring Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant. Here is the trailer. Doctor Who. Whispers of Terror. He shunned the visual media. Well, you probably know that. No video, no celluloid. Only a few photos. Well, we are fortunate to have Crane's own personal recordings. Everything that Crane recorded is now linked into the archives. The Museum of Oral Antiquities is enriched by the addition, just as the world is poorer at the reason for it. What do you think it is, Doctor? An invisible noise. A sentient sound source? Is that possible? Is what possible? Is he always so helpful and forthcoming? I'm afraid so. It's very annoying. You know, I think what we have here is a life form that has managed to modulate itself as a sound wave. When I am elected, it will be to implement the policies and ideas that Vistine Crane stood for. Oh, God! It's live! Ah! The Whispers of Terror is the first Big Finish audio to properly star Colin Baker as the Sixth Doctor. It's a very interesting play for several reasons, and the story also starred 
Nicola Bryant as Perry. Now, the first thing worth mentioning is the way that Colin has played his Doctor has changed a lot over his years at Big Finish. It has been a gradual transition, but when you go back to the first play here that he did in 1999, the differences are astounding. His portrayal of the character in this story is much like his portrayal in the first full TV series he was in. Slightly bombastic, full of himself and a bit of an egotist would be a polite way of how of describing how his character came across in season 22. And there are loads of elements of that in here, although they feel toned down a little bit. So in some ways he's more like the slightly more gentle version of the character that appeared in season 23. He doesn't play the Doctor like this anymore. In the current plays, he is far more gentle. He still has a huge sense of outrage at anything unfair. That can never go away. Go away. It's one of, the, one of the defining characteristics of his Doctor. But I am looking forward to seeing how this evolves over the next few audios from the early years. I do recall that when they recorded the first Missing Adventure series, which were all Sixth Doctor and Perry stories set immediately after season 22 partially made out of cancelled scripts from season 23, um, he did say that he had to consciously revisit the older style of his performance so that in continuity terms it fitted. Whispers of Terror is a great story. The idea is all about information in a sound archive being manipulated and recordings are being changed so that their content fits the needs of a specific individual. It has a wonderful guest cast, the best being Peter Miles as Gantman, the curator of the Museum of Aural Antiquities. Miles was in several episodes of televised Doctor Who playing various characters, but he will always be best remembered for his role as Nida, Davros's evil henchman in Genesis of the Daleks, a role he returned to for Big Finish in their terrific miniseries, I, Davros, from 2006. This is one of the very few Big Finish stories that takes huge advantage of the fact that it is in the audio medium. I'm not going to say this would have made a great TV series because it wouldn't have worked as one. There is a twist in here you could not have done on the television. To even tell that part of the story, had they tried it on TV, it would have had to be filmed in a particular weird way, which would have led you to ask questions immediately. Gantman, the curator, is blind, and there is a character that he regularly interacts with, a research student called Miles Napton. Gantman is the only one who talks to him in person. He communicates with other characters via a radio, but never one-to-one. The story is about a sound wave that has become sentient and is out to get revenge on the people that ended its mortal existence. When it was alive, it was an actor called Vistine Crane, who was about to announce himself as a candidate for the presidency. Now, we never get to find out where he would have been president of. I'm not sure if this story is set on Earth or not, but it, it doesn't matter. It then becomes another base under siege type story, only this time the characters are trapped in a museum, a soundproof museum, naturally, with a sentient sound wave based on revenge. Vistine Crane's presidential running mate was going to be Beth Purnell, played by Lisa Bowerman. As a tribute to Crane, and as part of the campaign to win the presidency for herself, she intends to play a recording of the dress rehearsal of his candidature speech, in which he was going to announce her as his running mate. The only problem is that he'd changed his mind at the last minute and was going to denounce her, which she had found out about. His death was no coincidence, but before he died, he managed to transfer his consciousness into this sound wave. 
the audio of the sound wave creature, represented by a cacophony of strange, distorted and echoing voices and screams, is creepy as hell. The sound wave luring people involved in Purnell's conspiracy to their deaths is really chilling and really well done. And then there's the revelation that Mars Napton just does not exist. It was purely the sound wave communicating with the blind curator. It's great stuff. Another terrific sequence comes in episode three. The Doctor manages to trap the audio wave and save it onto a CD. So unless someone is stupid enough to play the thing, it should stay on there forever. Unfortunately, Beth Purnell needs to know what the, compu- what the wave knows. So she disconnects the speakers, plays the disc and allows the computer to relay what Crane is saying. It's perfectly safe because the actual sound wave is never actually heard. Just a computer simulation of the audio. When it won't tell her what she wants to know, she loads the wave into an audio editor and then starts editing it. She chops it out. She elongates others. And it's torture. She's torturing it. It's rather akin to, you know, chopping bits off or stretching someone on a rack. And it's quite shocking. The wave goes insane at this point. And thanks to Perry releasing it by turning up the volume in order to facilitate her own escape, there is a genuine risk that if it can get itself broadcast when Purnell broadcasts her edited tributes, every listener will then have an an insane version of the killer sound wave on their hands. I love this. It's Big Finish's first truly great original story. Everyone plays their roles wonderfully. There are twists that you're not expecting, and it's a wonderful script by Justin Richards. I do think it's another three years before they truly tell a story that would also only work on audio, which from memory was the Eighth Doctor's Embrace the Darkness. Uh, Hopefully at some point I will talk about that in the future. So that's it. The plays mentioned today are all available as downloads. In fact, the Doctor Who plays are currently half price. So for £1.49 each, you can own the Sirens of Time, Phantasmagoria and the Whispers of of Terror. Indeed, the first hundred plays in the range are £1.49. Um, So this podcast and video come out on Friday the 19th of April 2021 and the offer ends on Sunday the 21st. So you've got if you listen to this quickly, you have a couple of days get buying. You'd be mad not to. So I should be back hopefully on April the 2nd with my look at the new audio releases from March. But until then, please subscribe to my Twitch channel my YouTube channel, or to this as a podcast, the Big Vinish Review podcast on iTunes and hopefully other platforms soon. So until April, goodbye and thank you for listening and watching. This podcast was originally conceived as a YouTube video, hence occasional references to things you can see on the screen. It was written and performed by Richard A. Boxhall, and all trailers were used with kind permission from Big Finish Productions. If you have any thoughts or feedback, please email me at richard.a.b.writes at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.